You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is the second lecture in a series entitled The Logic of Religion. This segment deals with classical attitudes toward religion. I'll be speaking about noble conceptions of religion that antedate Christianity. Specifically, I wish to look at the virtue of religion as it is described by Socrates, by Aristotle, by Cicero, by Seneca. I begin with Socrates in the Euthyphro. What is behind this is to show that there is such a thing as natural religion as opposed to revealed religion. We regard Christianity as revealed religion, so also the Jewish faith and the Islamic faith. These are examples of religion based on revealed truth by God himself. The Greeks and the Romans were not so positioned. They were not in possession of any revelation, and yet they entertained rather noble ideas with respect to God and of how man should relate to God. This is specifically true when we get to Cicero and Seneca. Now, these noble understandings of religion are generated usually by philosophical considerations, but not simply by philosophical considerations. Most philosophers, in talking about religion, were reflecting upon the attitudes and outlooks of the people as a whole. And we'll see how that reflects in some of the language we'll be employing as we go along. I begin with Socrates in the Euthyphro. And the background is that the Greek mind had a well-developed sense of piety. Piety in the sense of acknowledging debt. Now to what or whom does one owe debt? One owes debt to one's parents, certainly. One owes debt to one's country, perhaps to one's teachers, to one's community. Well, the debt that one owes, the most fundamental debt, is the debt one owes to God. So piety is simply the acknowledgement of that debt and an attempt to satisfy it in various ways. Now, I must indicate that for the Greek mind, there were two sets of habits that pertain to the well-being of an individual. There are habits of intellect and habits of will. Habits of intellect included things like science and art, what we would today identify medicine and law, the natural sciences as habits of intellect. But there were habits of will, too. And a habit is simply the ability to do something with ease, that is, with freedom, with a certain amount of satisfaction. 
We all know how difficult it was to learn the multiplication tables or even to tie one's shoes at one time in life. We acquire the facility to do that with ease as a result of repeated acts, and with that comes a certain degree of satisfaction. We enjoy doing what we do well. Plato, whom we're about to talk about, had identified four cardinal virtues around which all the others hinged. Prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. Piety, in the sense that we will be using it, is a species of justice, one of those cardinal virtues. To be just is to fulfill one's obligations. The fulfilling of one's obligation to God is the virtue of piety. So we will see developing here a notion of religion as a habit of paying homage to the divine. It's a moral virtue in the language of the Greeks and the Romans we are about to consider. Now most of us don't look upon religion in exactly that way. It's a good habit, therefore it's called a virtue. Most of us have good habits, but we also have bad habits. One can be neglectful of things that one ought to attend to. One can be sloppy, shiftless, a bit lazy, etc. These are bad habits. A good habit is a virtue. Religion from the Roman point of view, from the Greek point of view, is a good habit. It's one that one must possess. Now, saying that, we find that in the dialogue, Plato's dialogue, the Euthyphro, the part of justice which has to do with the attention to the gods constitutes piety. That's straight out of Plato. And the remaining part of justice is that which has to do with the service to one's fellow men. Justice is a virtue which binds all the others together into harmony and brings unity to the person taken as a whole. Now he's talking about justice in general and not simply the virtue of religion. The virtue of religion is based upon one's recognition of the gods. Now what does attention to the gods mean? The gods cannot be benefited by our paying homage. We can't do anything for the gods. They exist out of time. So they cannot be benefited or brought to a greater degree of perfection by anything that man can do. The virtue, then, is not perfective of the gods. We're dealing here, whenever we're talking from a classical perspective, we're talking about ancient Athens, we're talking about Rome largely before Christ. We don't have the refined or perfected notion of God that we will find in the Hebraic scriptures and in the Gospels. We have to keep that in mind. So when I'm using the word God or gods, it's from the perspective of classical antiquity. Now to practice piety with respect to the gods involves a kind of service. And if one is to be pious, one must commit oneself in some fashion to the practice of such service. And Plato in the Euthyphro suggests that praying and sacrifice are modes of service, honor, 
praise, and gratitude. And the result of that, the result of honoring, praising, showing gratitude, is that salvation is brought to individual families and states. This is a rather interesting concept. Now, Socrates, as we know, was eventually put to death, and the charge was impiety. He was charged with impiety because he didn't recognize the gods accepted by the state. As a consequence, he was charged with corrupting the youth. Now, it's well known that Socrates was neither an enemy of morality nor of the state. As a matter of fact, he had a very noble conception of God, one that was not shared in the popular culture at that time with its plurality of divinities, some glorifying vice as well as virtue. Now, a little background. For Socrates, a wise man is one who is both good and happy. That doctrine has a bearing on my present topic, namely man's attitude toward the divine. Socrates argued that happiness is dependent upon integrated selfhood. Now, what does that mean? An inner harmony of self with self or put another way, integrity. Integrity is achieved through the education of will by insight. If you want to motivate someone, you have to show them the worth of that which they are encouraged to pursue. Insight itself is attained through training, through education, if you will, through purposeful thoughtfulness. Socrates is famous for the remark, the unexamined life is not worth living. Now, to achieve this insight, what is required, in his words, is plain, hard, honest, humble thinking in the context of a triple dialogue. A triple dialogue is conducted with oneself, with others, and with the mysterious ultimate that lures man on. Virtue can be taught because the relevant insights which generate the virtuous life can be communicated. Education, again, is all important. The virtue of religion is piety. And piety can be taught like any other virtue. On the subject of prayer, Xenophon records that Socrates' ideal was to pray for that which is good without further specification, believing that the gods know best what is good for you. Now, in Christianity, we teach children that you pray to God, you can pray for what you want, but God knows best what is good for you. You may not get an answer to your prayer immediately, but no prayer goes unheard, and you may find fulfillment way down the road, a fulfillment that you didn't expect. In Alcibiades, too, Plato has Socrates approve this old Spartan prayer. And I'll repeat that prayer and listen. You may find it as charming as I do. Give us, O King Zeus, what is good, whether we pray for it or not, and avert us from evil, even if we pray for it. 
Socrates' ideal prayer is also shown in a beautiful prayer to Pan, which occurs at the end of the Phaedrus, the dialogue of the Phaedrus. Now we're talking about the fourth century BC here. O beloved Pan, and all ye other gods of this place, grant to me that I may be made beautiful in my soul within, and that all external possessions be in harmony with my inner man. May I consider the wise man rich, and may I have such wealth as only the self-restrained man can bear or endure. And then he turns to Phaedrus, as a persona in the dialogue, and asked, do we need anything more, Phaedrus? And the answer is, for me, that prayer is enough. Now, we really don't seek the sources of our spiritual life in antiquity, that is, in Greek and Roman sources. But I think as this lecture unfolds, we can see that there is a gold mine there, so to speak, of insight that can be employed even by the Christian. As a matter of fact, I think we will see that Christianity as it was received in the minds of those we call the fathers of the church, that Christianity was developed, amplified, implications indicated by employing the categories of Greek thought. As a matter of fact, we teach that Christ came in the fullness of time, that is, when the intellect of the West was prepared to receive the truths of the gospel. To turn to that other great Greek intellect, Aristotle in his day will say that the word father, when applied to Zeus, includes Zeus's care for men, which is interesting, that the notion of father is bound up with the notion of caring for, responsibility, if you will. This idea first appears in Greek literature in a passage of Plato's Apology, in which Socrates says to his judges, quoting, No evil can come to a good man either in life or in after death, and God does not neglect him. We have these bits and snippets from what Plato reports about Socrates. We have no writings from Socrates himself. There's no doubt that he's a real person. He was a teacher of Plato. We depend on others for a recounting of Socrates' views. Now we move directly to Plato. It's through Plato that we know most about Socrates, but then Plato takes, well, leave the Socratic dialogue, so to speak, and now move to others. Plato followed Socrates and rejected what he called the indecent fables told about the gods. It was those indecent fables that Socrates was rejecting, and it was on that account that he was called impious. Plato identifies the poets who make up these fables that are conveyed in popular culture or a danger to the health of society. They're lying about things that we have some truth about. Plato's conception of the divine and of man's relationship to the divine was, I think, most lofty. In the Timaeus, where the central character of the dialogue, Timaeus, begins his story of, quote, creation. 
We learned that the eternal model is the demiurge himself. A distinction has to be made here. The notion of creation is more like the notion we employ when we talk about an artist creating, not God creating the world out of nothing. For Plato, there was eternal matter, there was a demiurgos, a divine light maker, and then there were the eternal archetypes in the light of which the making took place. So you have three sets there, all eternal, matter, chaotic, the maker, the artificer, and then the ideas in the light of which that which we encounter in nature and in ourselves was in fact made. But to return to my text, in the Timaeus, we learn that the eternal model is the demiurgos, or the demiurge himself. This is Plato now. Let me tell you, then, why the Creator made this world of generation. He was good, and the good can never have any jealousy of anything. And being free from all jealousy, he desired that all things should be as like himself as they can be." End quote. The eternal being of the demiurgos, the maker, the organizer, is orderly. When he takes over discordantly moving primordial matter, he brings to it order from disorder. The eternal being of a demiurge is intelligent. Therefore, since intelligence cannot be present anywhere without dynamic soul, psyche, the demiurge fashions intelligence, that is, noose, within the soul. You can say that he gives intelligence an insouled embodiment. The demiurge is the symbol of incarnation the process of the embodiment that bridges the gulf between the eternal, changeless being and the time and space changeable becoming. The timeless model is brought down to earth and is rendered incarnate in a multiplicity of things. So we have the eternal ideas, chaotic matter, it's the intelligence of the demiurgos that introduces order into this chaotic material realm. So you have a realm subject to change and flux, and then apart from that, you have the eternal ideas in the action of a demiurge. And we should also note that the demiurge is not to be equated with Yahweh of the Bible. The Demiurge is not experienced as utterly transcending his creation, but is actively engaged within it. The Demiurge is pictured, again, as an artist, working with somewhat reluctant materials, which he has not made, but which he struggles to shape in a way that expresses, insofar as possible, the goodness and intelligibility of his model. Those words keep coming back. Goodness is identified with the demiurgos. Goodness and intelligence. These are attributes that we attribute to God. 
The parallel between the demiurge and human beings struggling to express themselves in their concrete existence is found in the essentially good and orderly, intelligible, shall we say, structure of individuals who meet Socrates' criteria of good and wise. So that notion is important to the extent that human beings participate in the life of intellect and goodness, they resemble the demiurgos. Plato's philosophical outlook includes personal belief then in the providence of higher intelligences with regard to human affairs. According to his basic philosophical conceptions, no city-state can attain a high degree of culture unless its rulers pattern that state in the light of the ideas, that is, the archetypes. Athens and other Greek city-states, Plato holds, have, as a matter of historical fact, reached a high and proud degree of civilization. And yet, some of their greatly revered leaders haven't even heard of the ideal, haven't even heard of the archetypes, let alone have received training in the doctrine of the archetypes. Well, how account for their success? How can you be successful without the kind of knowledge that leads to success? They ruled, according to Plato, not by knowledge, but by true opinion, which unfortunately is undependable and insecure because of a lack of causal tie with what in fact is the case. The security and dependability of their opinions, that is the opinions of these great Greek leaders, required some cause apart from their own thinking. How come they did good things without really understanding what they were doing? Some cause was required for their good deeds. And Plato looks to inspiration from a higher type of intelligence than the merely human. And this is a quotation now, a long quotation, and I'll close with that. And therefore, not by any wisdom, and not because they were wise, did Themistocles and those of whom Antheus speaks but if not by knowledge, the only alternative which remains is that the statesman must have been guided by right opinion, which in politics is what divination is in religion. For diviners and also prophets say many things that are true, but they know not what they say. Yes, and statesmen above all may be said to be divine and illumined, being inspired and possessed of God, in which condition they say many grand things, not understanding completely what they are saying. And we find this notion also present in a passage of the Republic, given the actual condition of human government everywhere, based as it is upon traditionally received notions and not upon philosophical knowledge. The good that is present is due then, as Plato thinks, to a higher intervention. For I would not have you ignorant that in the present state of governments, whatever is saved and comes to good is saved by the power of God, as we may truly say. So Plato believes that men so inspired, though a few in number, 
are always to be found. I want to return to Plato after we've taken a short break. I want to examine the doctrine that he puts forward in the laws governing the behavior of people toward religion and the state. I wish now to continue the discussion of religion as we find it in Plato. I am looking at these Greek notions of religion in order to arrive at some understanding of what a mind uninformed by Christianity or by the Hebrew scriptures came to believe and hold. We find in classical literature a very noble conception of human nature to begin with, but also of religion as the virtue of piety by which man pays homage to God. In the laws, not surprisingly, where Plato is discussing law relevant to the state, that is, the state's enactment of laws, he does not hesitate to propose legislation regarding religious observance. He maintains that one magistrate, at least, should, on behalf of the city, sacrifice daily to some god or demigod, that is, sacrifice on behalf of the city, the citizens, and their possessions. In Book 10 of the Laws, he lays down his proposal for the punishment of those who regard all of this as foolish, that is, those who are atheist, and those who do not subscribe to the common teaching regarding the gods and the necessity of worship. Plato will say, to say that the universe is the product of the motions of corporeal elements, unendowed with intelligence, that's atheism. Plato argues that there must be a source of the motion, and that ultimately we must admit a self-moving principle called the soul, or the mind, which is the ultimate cause of cosmic movement. Plato decides that there must be more than one soul responsible for the universe because there is disorder and irregularity as well as order. Not all is uniformly orderly. There may be more than two sources, but it's heresy to say that the gods are indifferent to mankind. The gods are not only responsible for cosmic order, or I should say the demiurgos, but the gods are interested even in small things. God cannot be too indolent or too fastidious to attend to details. Even a human maker, workman, craftsman, attends to small details. Providence does not involve interference, however, with the laws of nature. Divine justice will be realized in some way, perhaps in a succession of lives. A pernicious heresy is the opinion that the gods are venal. This is Socrates' gods that he rejected. And that those venal gods can be induced by bribes to condone injustice. Penalties are to be inflicted on those proved guilty of atheism or heresy. 
A morally inoffensive heretic will be punished for at least five years in a house of correction. And a second conviction will be punished by death. That's rather severe. We, we talk about the death penalty in our own time and we are reluctant to impose it even for mass murder, for, for rape. And here Plato is suggesting that the unity of the state, the integrity of the collective conscience, as it were, of a people, requires a submission and a public denial of that which the people as a whole believe is a major offense, a capital crime. Heretics who also trade on the superstition of others with a view to their own profits, or who establish immoral cults, should be imprisoned for life. No private shrines or private cults are to be permitted. Religion is, in Plato, a communal affair. Before proceeding to prosecute an offender for impiety, the guardians of the law should determine whether the deed was done in earnest or from childish or youthful frivolity. Though there is a difference in emphasis between the laws and some of his earlier works, Plato's overall view is not different from those which he espoused in the Republic, a much earlier work than the laws. In the Republic, Plato says, religion is beyond the sphere of the philosopher and the legislator. Tradition is to be followed in these matters. That concept that tradition is to be followed is a rather important one. St. Thomas in the Summa Theologica will insist that tradition normally has the force of law. The traditions of a people are the unformulated laws it lives by, so to speak. And here Plato is suggesting that tradition in matters of religious practice is all-important, perhaps overriding. This is a direct quotation. He's talking about Apollo, the god of Delphi. To Apollo, there remains the ordering of the greatest and noblest and chiefest of all things. Which are they? Well, the institution of temples and sacrifices and the entire service of the gods, demigods and heroes. Also the ordering of the repositories of the dead and the rites which are to be observed by him who would propitiate the inhabitants of the world below. These are matters of which we are ignorant ourselves, and as founders of a city, we should be unwise in trusting them to any interpreter but our ancestral deity. So there is a problem raised here regarding orthodoxy, so to speak, which even in platonic discussions of religion comes up. How do we guard against fallacious interpretations of the tradition. Well, we leave Plato. We leave with a recognition that there is an order that transcends the material order of sense experience. We leave with the recognition that behind the orderliness of nature there is a divine-like intelligence, and that because of its goodness, its benevolence, that we should recognize it and pay homage in some fashion. So religion comes out of the recognition 
that there is an indebtedness in both Plato and Aristotle with regard then religion as a personal moral virtue, a species of justice by which man pays homage to the gods upon whom he is dependent in some fashion. Aristotle did not have much to say about religion, but I would like to indicate just one or two things where we do find something, not much, but something. There are no significant texts relevant to the subject of religion. Though we do find in one place Aristotle offering a psychological interpretation of belief in the gods. He discusses the possibility that our notion of the gods comes out of experience that we've had in dreams. But then he goes on, and this is more like Aristotle, that our notion of God is derived from the order and harmony in the universe and our attempt to render that order and harmony intelligible. There can be no doubt, however, that Aristotle argues to a number of concepts associated with the divine. He takes for granted an immaterial order. I mean, he can reason to that. He also argues to a first or ultimate cause which draws all things to itself, a sumum bonum, something drawing everything to itself. And then Aristotle also has a self-thinking intellect. But I know of no text where he prescribes homage or piety. So these concepts become very, very important to later Christian discussions of religion. The immaterial order certainly presupposed we look upon God as contemplating himself, we look upon him as benevolent, we look upon him as the end of all things. I turn next to Epicurus, who lived approximately 341 to 270 BC. Now this is contra to the rather noble conceptions that we've just seen in Socrates and in Plato. For Epicurus, religion is a disease of the soul, having its origin in fear of the gods and of the hereafter. It's not respect for the eternal laws, as Socrates and Plato thought, which is at the bottom of religion, it's quite the opposite. The frightening qualities which we find in nature lead men to search for sources responsible for them. But these sources, given the chaotic state of the human condition, can hardly be imagined as beneficent. Man also created his gods because he was convinced that the evildoers should be punished in an afterlife. So God is created as a supreme judge, so to speak, creating a punishment for those that were evildoers in this life. So this is Epicurus. In this manner, man's evil conscience is posited as the root of religion. So that's a counter-opinion, as it were, to what I have described as the noble opinions of Socrates and Plato. I wish to look at another ancient view of religion, 
And this is from Cicero. And to date him, he lived in the years 105 to 43 BC. And this is taken, this treatment discussion, is taken from his work that is handed to us in English title on religious institutions. Cicero regards social organization as closely related to the divine. It's natural, he says in his book De Legibus 3, that we should consider first the means by which the state endeavors to win the favor of the gods, and then second, the ways by which the state under divine favor lives and functions. In the one case, the state acts through religious ceremony and priestly order, but in the other, through magistrates and groupings of the chief men and people. So that proposition again is that the state has a stake in collective worship, and that involves rite and ritual ceremony, and then how should the state itself function in the light of its relationship to the divine? And to bring this to some sort of code, he introduces what for him is a code of religious law, and in introducing that, he has a preamble in which he urges all citizens of the Commonwealth to believe implicitly in the supremacy of the deathless gods. For the gods not only govern the universe, but they also perceive and record acts and feelings of each individual. Now this is the first time we have picked that up in classical literature, that what goes on in our souls, so to speak, is judged by the gods. Accordingly, if reverence itself does not inspire devotion, if the teaching about gods does not, as it were, make us appreciative of our indebtedness, dependence on them, then prudence will dictate the expediency of worship because those gods that know how we both feel and act will ultimately judge us, then prudence suggests that we ought to worship those beings who will be both witnesses and judges against us in the next life. The religious provisions themselves, Cicero draws up in his, what we would call, legalistic phraseology. The gods have to be approached reverently and with a pure heart and without costly ceremony. That's interesting. Reverence is dear to the gods the manner in which men approach them should be fitting. If the law stresses purity of heart, it does not thereby imply that no importance is to be attached to purity of the body. The body of the worshiper should be ceremonially clean. And how often do we see that in religions worldwide? A kind of cleansing motion it might be symbolic, Sometimes it's actual that one enters the temple after washing one's feet. By forbidding costly ceremony, the law opens the rights of religion to all. 
That's also interesting that some may be better positioned through works of one sort or another to praise and express their adoration, but piety is a virtue which all should possess and all should have the opportunity to express that piety in corporeal acts. Now, we still have here uh, in Cicero the notion of a multiplicity of gods. We don't have the Hebrew God, we don't have Yahweh, we don't have Christian teaching about God, so that has to be noted. Cicero acknowledges a hierarchy among gods. The divinities who are thus to be approached do not all possess identical significance. In the first place come the gods of heaven. In the second, deified mortals, such as Hercules, and then he places next the personified abstractions such as intelligence, virtue, and faith. I mean, sometimes we do that uh, ourselves. We have a statue of liberty, and we do have statues of justice. We have statues that indicate uh, prudence. Then after these, Cicero puts the dead who are to be considered as gods. Into this pantheon, no new or imported gods will be admitted unless they have been officially adopted by the state. Furthermore, citizens will not be allowed to worship the personification of any evil abstraction. That's, for me, rather interesting that there is a hierarchy to those whom we should pay homage. And paying homage not only includes the immaterial order, but also our ancestors. And here, too, is a recognition that Christianity will be quite contrary to it, that you may have the gods of the place, as it were, the gods of a people, rather than universal religion. Also interesting in Cicero is his division of religious observance into urban and rural spheres. Certain practices are at all times forbidden. Women must not participate in nocturnal sacrifices except when duly performed on behalf of the people. No wicked person may offer gifts to the gods in the hope of softening their anger toward him. No one except attendants of the great mother of the gods may collect money for religious purposes, and even they may do so only on proper days. Cicero feels that the custom of taking money consumes property and disseminates superstition. No one may dedicate land, which is the sacred possession of all, to the gods for any special purpose. But vows, if taken, are to be strictly observed. Violations of any religious law is to be punished. From those who are guilty of perjury, two penalties are exacted. Since on the one hand, perjury is an offense against God, the punishment is death. And since on the other hand, perjury intimately affects human life and interest, death must be accompanied by disgrace. In the rural districts, where graves are the religious centers, the simple pieties of ancestral and family worship are to be carefully preserved. Recognizing the importance of religion in the countryside, 
he decreased the days of relaxation. We would call them feast, falling at such seasons of the year as naturally coincide with the end of the farmer's labor. In the cities, on the other hand, the gods are to be worshipped in temples, where statues bring them vividly before the eyes and thoughts of men. Another ceremonial form which accompanies urban observance is that of public games. Ritual, that is, the rites that are to be observed in approaching the gods, is subject to guidance of a set of priests, public priests, which he calls the sacerdotia. And priests fall into two separate groups. The first mentioned by Cicero are the pontiffs. They preside over all public and private ceremonies and supply information as to the proper form of ritual. Within their competence also falls the duty of punishing with death any vestal who fails to keep her vow of chastity. Then there are certain priests assigned to the worship of a particular divinity, and these are the flamens. Cicero doesn't describe their duties, but he does describe the duties of the vestals, groups of women who direct the worship of Vesta. They guard the sacred fire, symbol of a city's domestic life, and may never allow it to become extinguished. The emphasis here is on family, and to protect the family, the god Vesta is invoked. If one is chosen to be a Vestal virgin, one is in that service for 30 years. Amazing. Now, a second class of priests, as opposed to the pontiffs, or the augurs, we use that term, to augur well or ill. The augurs expound the will of Jupiter by interpreting signs and auspices. They are to determine by appropriate ritual whether the gods favor the state, its crops, its priests. Their pronouncements duly delivered after formal observation or law, even to the military commanders in the field, and of course to the magistrates in the city. And their mandates are enforced by the penalty of death. The chief and preeminent power in the commonwealth then is that associated with the augurs, with their authority, declaring war, concluding peace, or striking a treaty, are all done with the sanction of religion, that is, the Fischio College. In Roman belief, political power, considered abstractly, talk about political power, it comes from the gods. Human agents can properly exert political authority only when that authority is divinely sanctioned. Now, that's Cicero, and I am tempted just one word or two about Seneca, and we'll conclude with that. In his treatise on private life, Seneca, now we're talking about a later Roman. Seneca's dates are roughly 4 B.C. to 65 A.D., so Seneca's a contemporary of Christ. What service is there to God in contemplation, he asked. And he gives the answer that the greatness of God's work is not without witness. And one more short quotation. It's not by sacrificial victims, however fat and glittering with gold, that the gods are honored, but by uprightness and holiness of will in the worshipers.
good men with no more to offer than groats and meal paste or devout, while the wicked cannot avoid impiety, however much they stain the altars with the blood of sacrificial victims. With that, I think we've seen some rather interesting conceptions of religion drawn from classical antiquity, Plato, Cicero, Seneca. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.